It's the 18th of April, 1527. The people of Rome have put aside the excitement of the last few months to come together for a Christian holiday, Holy Thursday. The sticky summer heat had subsided and a pleasant breeze now rolled through the ancient streets. The courtyard of the half-finished St. Peter's Basilica swelled with tourists, eager to receive the Pope's blessing on this holy day. For Pope Clement VII, it was finally a time to relax. He knew the rituals like the back of his hand, and welcomed any opportunity to forget about the looming disaster that grew close to the walls of his city. One after the next, the men, women and children fell to their knees as the pontiff made the sign of the cross, blessing them. Suddenly, an ear-piercing cry broke the silence. Thou bastard of Sodom! The Pope turned to see a scruffy-looking hermit climbing up a statue of St. Paul. His malnourished body was covered only by an old leather smock, his hair nodded and his eyes burned with hellfire. As the Pope's gaze fell on him, he continued, Thou bastard of Sodom, for thy sins Rome shall be destroyed. Repent and turn thee. If thou wilt not repent, believe me. In fourteen days thou shalt see it. Within seconds, the pontiff's guard had pried the hermit off the statue and marched him away. But his raspy voice echoed out a horrible warning to the pilgrims. Rome, do penance. They shall deal with thee as God dealt with Sodom. People pointed and whispered, a few laughed, but no one gave the lunatic ramblings much thought. But 18 days later, the madman's prophecy would be fulfilled, and the ancient city would be destroyed, as God once destroyed the city of Sodom. Welcome back to Anthology of Heroes, the podcast sharing stories of heroism and defiance from across the ages. This episode is part two of the story of the 1527 sack of Rome. Part one followed the life of the Duke of Bourbon, a disgraced French nobleman who had found himself leading a mutinous army to the gates of Rome. The Duke of Bourbon's life was one unfortunate decision after another, and it's through his eyes that we learn how Rome ended up being in the crosshairs for the army. We discussed the other major players in the story like Pope Clement VII, the Holy Roman Emperor Charles V, and King Francois I of France. This episode will shift away from the perspective of the Duke and instead follow Pope Clement VII as the ever-indecisive pontiff prepares, and I put that in air quotes, his city for the cataclysmic assault that was coming. We left episode one with a cliffhanger. The Duke of Bourbon's exhausted, starving army had just dragged itself up the walls of Rome and began the assault. A defender had just spied the gleaming silver surcoat of the Duke and fired through the mist. We're going to wind the clock back a few weeks now, though, to see what Clement had been up to before this moment. I'd recommend starting with episode one first, but I'd say that every episode, don't I? A quick trigger warning before we start. This episode is much darker than the first and includes descriptions of some extreme violence, including sexual violence. I'll give you another heads up later in the episode before we get really into it. So buckle up. Here we go. Massacre at Heaven's Gate, the 1527 Sack of Rome, Part 2, Horror and Atrocities. As the days dragged by, Pope Clement VII sat in his palace, paralysed by indecision. The hesitant pontiff had gone back and forth, back and forth between an alliance with France and the Holy Roman Empire, the two biggest European powers who had been at war with each other for a couple of years. 
All the while, the Pope had kept a toe in each camp, trying to make sure he was on the winning side. But both sides had found out about the Vatican's double dealings and now were well and truly done with Pope Clement VII. The Holy Roman Emperor had threatened to march to Rome himself and toss the pontiff out with his own hands, while one of his lieutenants had supposedly bragged to his cheering men that he was going to hang the Pope with a golden rope. With things looking particularly grim, Clement had appointed a man to command the papal troops should the war reach them. His name was Renzo de Cherry, and his appointment as the leader of the Vatican army was yet more proof of Clement's poor judgment. Renzo was part of an Italian mercenary group. He was a good enough soldier. When someone told him to stand in one place and hold the line, he'd do it. But a good soldier doesn't make a good leader. And Renzo was a woeful commander. He lacked the ability to put himself in the shoes of the enemy. He was overconfident in his ability to lead, and if something didn't go exactly to plan, he was completely lost. He was in well over his head, even if he didn't think so, and the impending disaster was as much his fault as it was Clement's. Initially, it seemed like Renzo's appointment was overkill, an overreaction for an event that would never occur. When France and the Holy Roman Empire signed a truce, his position seemed irrelevant. With the conflict supposedly put to bed, Clement sent a man north to treat with the approaching army. The Pope seemed to think that one of his envoys would be enough to convince these angry, mutinous men to forget about their months of hardship, starvation, and unpaid wages in exchange for a gold coin or two. The envoy barely escaped with his life, as their bedraggled commander, the Duke of Bourbon, laid it out for him, telling him that he'd lost control of these men long ago. He said, look, I'm no general. I'm little more than a guide to these men. If the Pope wants to turn this runaway train back, he better come up with five times the amount of gold that you're offering. And he better do it now, because these men are marching to Rome and getting paid one way or the other. The Pope was beside himself when he found out his offer had been rejected. But Commander Renzo said, hey, don't worry, we've got 10,000 troops here and we can raise money to buy more. At this point, the Pope had already dismissed the best mercenaries in Italy because he thought the war was over and didn't want to keep paying them. Big mistake. So, with the army marching ever closer by the day, the Pope summons the richest men of Rome for a meeting with him, essentially fundraising the defence of the city. These guys were the mega-rich, the Elon Musk, the Jeff Bezos of Rome kind of guys. All of them lived in these sprawling mansions, armies of servants, and were just ultra-wealthy. And the Holy Father literally begs them for money. He says to them, please, I need your help to pay for the defence of the city. We're in bad need of soldiers, the walls are falling apart, and if the army makes it inside, you're in as much trouble as I am. Please. And there's just silence. Crickets. No one moves from their seat. Eventually one person, the richest man in the entire city, comes up and drops a hundred ducats into the pile. Literal pocket change for him. Everyone else just sat silently, looking at the floor. They all seemed to believe that this was a bit of a shakedown, that the Pope didn't actually need their money, he was just being greedy. After all, how could the Vatican be broke? It was the Vatican. With the rich closing their checkbooks, Renzo turns to the poor and summons the city militia. In extreme events like this, the militia was intended to be a show of force that would hopefully be a deterrence for the enemy, or at worst, hold them off till a relief army was sent. About one quarter of them report for duty. To fill the gaps, Renzo starts conscripting townsfolk. Cooks are given bludgeons, and he decides that painters with their dexterous fingers will make good gunners. He begs Clement to throw his morals to the wind and sell off cardinal positions for cash. 
Pope Clement had always prided himself on not turning the sacred appointment of holy men into an auction. He wanted to draw a line in the sand, but with his back to the wall, he relented. The grasping hands of the greedy Roman elite snatched up the cardinal hats. Better to snag one now before old man Clement changes his mind. One of those hands belonged to a woman. A woman named Isabella de Este. Isabella is the last main character of our story, a really interesting figure whose role is often overlooked in the story of the siege. She's often called the First Lady of the Renaissance, a woman ahead of her time, really. All of the big players in the world of European fine art, all of them gravitated towards Isabella. Popes wanted to be near her, women wanted to be her, and kings wanted to romance her. You'd be hard-pressed to find a man or woman in the upper rungs of European society that hadn't at least heard the name Isabella d'Este. Isabella was one of those women who danced to the beat of her own drum. Literally. She invented new dances that took the courts of Europe by storm. She pioneered new fashion trends, organised the defence of kingdoms, and if the party was ever winding down, she could recite classical Greek and Roman poetry by heart. But that was in her youth. Isabella was in her 50s by this point. She was starting to slow down. A quieter life with a few parties here and there, that's how she wanted to spend her twilight years. So what was she doing in Rome then? Unlike others, she had the means to escape. With estates and friends all over Italy, she could have gone anywhere. But Isabella was stubborn. She wasn't used to being told no. She promised her son she'd get him his own cardinal hat and she wasn't about to be made to look a liar. But there was another reason she had no fear. Because Isabella's nephew was the disgraced general leading the army, Charles, the Duke of Bourbon. Isabella had heard rumours of the advancing army being particularly rowdy, but she was a noblewoman of the highest order, and with her nephew leading the army, and one of her sons as captain, she felt quite secure in her palace. But fate had one more adventure left for the wealthy dowager, and it would take everything she learned over the course of her action-packed life to survive the coming weeks. I spent an hour with the Pope. It is difficult to express the terror he is in. This was how one of the Pope's visitors described the pontiff's state of mind. For so long it had been easy for Clement to disengage from reality, but with each day the threat grew more and more real. A hostile army would be at the gates of Rome very soon. Yet his confidence was raised by his enthusiastic commander. Renzo de Cherry surveyed his mob a handful of cooks, a few artists, a couple of sculptors, and a lot of conscripted criminals. And somehow he decided this rabble were well-placed to defend against an army of desperate, starving veteran soldiers. Even Pope Clement's arch-nemesis, the Duke of Urbino, realised the code-red danger Rome was in. Despite his hatred for the man, he offered to send him a good chunk of soldiers to help defend the city. But in one of those you've-got-to-be-kidding moments, Renzo turned them away. That's right, he said, we're fine, we don't need them. So, the 8,000 strong army shrugged their collective shoulders and returned north, writing to their commander, quote, Apart from the confidence which our Holy Father reposes in his people, he, meaning Renzo, has made excellent provisions for defence. There is no need to have any fear whatsoever, end quote. By Saturday the 4th of May, the army was sighted on the horizon. As the last few merchants fled the city, the ancient gates of Rome slammed shut. The turncoat duke gave the Pope one last chance. 300,000 ducats. Pay it and we leave. The Pope's first offer back at the army camp was 60,000. 
Burbot had counted asking for 240000 and now the offer was at 300000 It was a lot of money, but it wasn't inconceivable. The pontiff had gained 240,000 ducats from selling the cardinal hats. Surely he could have scrounged up the last 60k. But Renzo again told him, don't worry, we got this. So Bourbon pulled on his silver surcoat and prepared for the final battle. It had been a little over five years since he sat down with the emperor's envoys and agreed to betray his king. Not a single thing had gone in his favour since that day. What was he now? Nothing. A French brigand leading a bunch of starving Germans who barely tolerated him, let alone respected him. But he was the type of man who did everything to the best of his ability. Maybe once he took the city, he could leverage his way back into high society. Perhaps it wasn't too late. As the troops grew closer to the wall, it was obvious that defences had been rushed. The majority of the walls constructed had been built by Emperor Aurelian almost 13 centuries ago. We covered Aurelian's life in season three of the show, but let that sink in. These walls, some of them at least, are nearing 1,300 years old. Not only that, but sections of it had just been pulled away to make way for, wait for it, gardens. One of the cardinals had decided that the city walls were a perfect place to grow his cabbages, so the troops simply walked through it. And boom, that was one layer of defence passed. As they neared the battlements, one of Bourbon's commanders pulled him aside and said, you know, are we really going to do this? Think for a second about what you're doing. If these men get inside, they will utterly destroy this ancient city. Your name will be mud and so will the emperor's. But Bourbon was past caring. As E.R. Chamberlain writes, quote, They, meaning the army, moved in eerie relative silence, for the heavy boots of most had long disintegrated, and they shuffled rather than marched in makeshift sandals. But their swords were honed, their lances and arquebuses oiled. They could still kill. Hello, this is Gary Chahot welcoming you to check out the French History Podcast. Our main show covers the history of France from the first humans until present. If you liked Mike Duncan's The History of Rome and wanted a similar program covering the land of beauty, culture, and love, we are exactly that. We also host world-renowned scholars who have delivered guest episodes on their specialties, including 18th century pirates, revolutionary booksellers in 20th century Paris, the special friendship between the Marquis de Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson, and numerous others. Learn what you love and listen to the French History Podcast today. Hello, we have this superb podcast called We Didn't Start the Fire, the only podcast started by Billy Joel. It is the most original, fascinating, and random way to learn the story of the 20th century. Oh, pretty darned random. And we are joined by some pretty incredible guests. I only wrote stuff that I wanted to hear. If it turned out to be a hit, it was pure dumb luck. With me, Katie Puckrick. And me, Tom Fordyce. This is We Didn't Start the Fire, the only podcast started by me, Billy Joel. The bells of the great churches of Rome rung out in alarm as citizens darted around the city frantically. Holes were hastily dug under cellars below the roots of an old tree or in the back of gardens, and purses full of coins, trinkets and jewellery were buried. According to one eyewitness, in the chaotic last moments before the storm hit, they witnessed a statue of baby Jesus levitate from the arms of the Virgin Mary before it was violently thrown into the ground, shattering into thousands of pieces. 
Isabella de Este received a final desperate warning from her son. Get out. The Duke doesn't command these men and neither he nor I can protect you. What is coming to Rome will be apocalyptic. But still, she refused. With her nephew leading the army and her son a captain, she thought no matter their warnings, she would be safe. Isabella d'Este made up her mind. She dug in and hired a group of mercenaries to defend her palace. Rumours of her fortified little corner of the city circulated quickly, and scores of wealthy Romans and cardinals were soon beating down her door and begging her to let them shelter within. And she was generous. Soon her palace was packed to the rafters, all the richest citizens in Rome crammed into one building. Because Bourbon's army had no siege weapons, their plan was to attack the portions of the wall that were lowest, and obviously these were the most heavily defended. Bourbon looked upon his exhausted vagabonds. Clothes falling to bits, starved, filthy and hungry, these men were on their last legs, and he knew it as he told them, quote, How lightly you bear the incredible strains you are undergoing right now, here in a place where there is no more food nor hope of having it immediately from any direction. We have little ammunition and no artillery. If we are not surrounded by the enemy, that is only because they lack manliness and courage, but also because their leaders believe that our situation is so hopeless that they will be victorious without bloodying their swords." End quote. It was a grim prospect. Take Rome or die. He tantalized the starving men with stories of piles of gold hoarded in the ancient city and concluded that those inside deserved what was coming. Quote, with the greatest justice, this punishment has been postponed until this blessed day and left to the Spanish and German nations by him who gives all things being and maintains them all in motion." End quote. With a last cheer for their turncoat general, the men charged forward as cannons mounted atop the Aurelian walls erupted and raked the front lines. The defenders were not artillerymen, but it was like shooting fish in a barrel. The attackers fell by the dozen, but then, like an act of God, a white cloud of mist drifted over the fortifications. The defenders now had almost no vision and fired blindly into the mist. Eerily, the battlefield quietened, and the sounds of plants being uprooted and wood clanking was heard. Suddenly, through the mist, a makeshift ladder sprung up against the wall. The attackers were using latchings from vineyards as ladders. A silver surcoat caught the eye of one defender, a goldsmith turned soldier, and we have his account from this day, quote, Upon the rampants where we took our station, several young men were lying killed by besiegers. The battle raged there desperately, and there was the densest fog imaginable. I turned to Alessandro and said, Let us go home as soon as we can, for there is nothing to be done here. You can see the enemies are mounting and our men are in flight. Alessandro called in panic, Would God that we had never come here, and turned in maddest haste to fly. I took him up somewhat sharply with these words. Since you have brought me here, I must perform some action worthy of a man. And directing my arquebus where I saw the thickest and most serried troop of fighting men, I aimed exactly at one who I remarked to be higher than the rest. When we had fired two rounds apiece, I crept cautiously up to the wall, and observing among the enemy a most extraordinary confusion, I discovered afterwards that one of our shots had killed the Constable of Bourbon. And from what I subsequently learned, he was the man whom I had first noticed above the heads of the rest." End quote. The Duke of Bourbon fell from the ladder and hit the ground with a sickening crunch. As blood gushed out of his iconic silver surcoat, he moaned, quote, Notre Dame, I am dead, end quote. Medics rushed the commander to a field hospital where they found out the bullet had entered his groin and severed an artery. As the Duke bled out in a makeshift hospital outside the city that he had given everything to take, 
In a state of delirium, he repeated over and over, quote, to Rome, to Rome, to Rome. The death of the Duke of Bourbon, whether it happened as the man above described it or in some other way, halted the army. It was as if time stood still and every man looked at each other wondering what they should do next. The defenders cheered and many even retreated, announcing that the siege was over because Bourbon was dead. But for the attackers, his death changed very little. They were still starving, they were still poor, and they were still angry. Like ants from an anthill, more and more men surged up the makeshift ladders with renewed aggression. The defenders had just killed the only man who had the slightest whiff of control over these men. The walls began to look like a forest as one after another ladders went up against it and the dead general's men scrambled over. The defenders manned the ramparts, pouring boiling oil over the sides and kicking down the ladders, and this went on for an hour or so. The battle swayed back and forth with no side willing to give ground. But at 10am, a tiny band of Spaniards found their way through the defences. According to E.R. Chamberlain, these men found an old basement with a tunnel leading under the walls, opened a trapdoor and just found themselves inside the city. Others say that the men had pried out a very weak section of the wall with their bare hands. However it happened, all agreed on what happened next. Renzo de Cherry, the hand-picked leader of the defence force, was overcome with cowardice at seeing the enemy soldiers. Seeing the Spanish troops, he was said to have screamed, quote, The enemy are within, save yourselves, end quote, before pushing past his stunned soldiers and running for his life. This small group of attackers could have easily been dealt with, but the defenders on the wall heard of de Cherry's flight and they too dropped their weapons and bolted. The enemy now surged up the wall, Whoever was still left was cut down. And this could have been where things ended, because separating this side of Rome to the other, more prosperous side was a large bridge. In the days leading to the siege, the Pope had proposed demolishing the bridge as a failsafe, but once again the Cardinals and the city's elite shouted him down. The bridge was too beautiful to be destroyed, and besides, it would be most inconvenient to ferry supplies across the water by boat. So it still stood. Renzo de Cherry must have been the very last citizen to escape the carnage, as he shamelessly bolted out of Rome on the fastest horse he could find. As the chants of Spain, Spain, kill, kill, echoed off the cobbled streets, the townsfolk ran to escape the carnage to the only safe place they knew. Many civilians were trampled to death as they piled against the door of Castle de San Angelo, the Pope's specially built fortress atop Emperor Hadrian's tomb. But the Pope himself wasn't inside, he was still at his palace. Bursting into his private prayer room came his Swiss guard, by far the best troops in the city if not in Europe. The pontiff immediately knew something was very wrong. Just like every other decision, Clement made this one at the last second. As he ummed and ahed about whether it was time to leave, Bourbon's furious troops breached the courtyard to his palace. As the rabble burst through the doors and into the exquisite, tapestry-lined corridors of the palace, Clement knew now he was in grave danger. His bodyguards hastily threw off his snow-white cap and cape and rushed him towards the secret escape route. By now, 189 steely-eyed Swiss guardsmen had formed up at the bottom of the stairs. They had trained for this exact moment. Fully prepared to die for the Pope, they awaited the fury of Bourbon's blood-drunk men as the pontiff scurried away to the passageway. If they wanted to get the Pope, they'd have to get through them first. The Swissmen stood unflinching, their gleaming steel pikes beckoning their exhausted German cousins to try their luck. On the stairs of the palace, the clash of German steel rang out against the hallowed halls. Body after body fell at the foot of the stairs, as the Swissmen skillfully dispatched one man after the other. 
but the Landknechts had numbers on their sides and no amount of Swiss discipline could hold back the tide forever. Their wounds mounting and their numbers dwindling, they fell back and fell back again, but didn't dare falter until they knew the Pope had escaped. The historical metal band Sabaton immortalized this moment in their song, The Last Stand. Their lyrics go like this, quote, Then the 189, in the service of heaven, they're protecting the holy line, it was 1527, gave their lives on the steps of heaven, thy will be done. For the grace, for the might of our Lord, for the home of the holy, for the faith, for the way of the sword, gave their lives so boldly, end quote. Their leader, Caspar Royce, instructed the remaining men to skewer the Pope's rear and hold until he had reached the castle. Royce, soaked in blood, having done his duty, stumbled back home to say his goodbyes to his family. He knew he was a marked man, but maybe he could have a day or two with his family before they found him. But the mob was hot on his trail, and in front of his wife and children, they seized him and bashed him to death. 42 of the Swiss Guard ran the last meters of the passageway, flanking the pontiff to protect him from missiles. From below, the Pope would have heard the beginning and the pleading of a population who knew their death was coming soon. The Spaniards and the Germans had now reached the inner city, and the slaughter was beginning. With the Pope safely inside the fortress, his guardsmen gave the order to drop the gate. The metal gate fell with deadly force, impaling many people who had tried to force themselves inside. By the time the door shut, about 3,000 souls had crammed themselves into the tiny fortress. The door locked behind the Pope, and it would not open again for many, many months. Outside the citadel, the Landknechts began their butchery. Their first directive was to ensure the city was properly taken before they started looting. They needed the population cowed and subdued, and indiscriminate killing was the quickest way to do it. When they realised the Spaniard contingent of the army had already begun gathering hostages, they were furious. With the imminent threat of death finally having left them, factionalism split the conquering army quickly. But the first point of call for every one of the men was food. Quote, the gaunt figures ate and ate until they could consume no more. Months of gruel, weak soup and rancid vegetables, now they had their choice of anything. End quote. Once it was clear that the Swiss guards were gone, the Pope's lavish palace was sacked. Townsfolk who hid in churches were usually spared butchery post-siege, but not here. The polished floors of the city churches were soon slick with blood, and the pews piled high with corpses, people from all statuses, from labourers to bankers. For the nuns and the priests, death was preferable to falling into the hands of the Lutheran Protestants. Because to the Protestants, they were chief instruments in promoting this corrupted, filthy version of their faith. Nuns were raped en masse and priests were tortured hideously. The Catholic faith was openly mocked as German soldiers forced priests to perform the sacrament ritual on a mule they dressed up in cardinal's clothing. When the man refused, he was killed on the spot. Another source speaks of Germans holding a type of macabre parade. A cardinal was forced into a coffin that the soldiers nailed shut, and while they sung a funeral song for him, the coffin was paraded through the streets to the drunken, jeering soldiers who blamed every crime imaginable on the entombed man. Other cardinals, well into their 80s, were forced to escort the entourage through the streets. A source describes the soldiers with gigantic pearls weaved into their beards, draped in velvet cloaks with fingers bulging with rings meant for smaller women's hands. Francesco Giacardini, a secondary source, tells us how these holy men were treated. Quote, Many of these men wore torn and disgraceful habits, meaning clothes. Others were without shoes. Some in ripped and bloody shirts had cuts and bruises all over their bodies from the indiscriminate whippings and beatings they'd received. Some had thick and greasy beards, 
Some had their faces branded and were missing teeth. Others were without noses or ears. Some were castrated, end quote. The tombs of even the most venerated saints, we're talking St. Peter himself, were pried open. Their bones were wrenched from their sockets and smashed in search of jewels hidden behind them. Once any valuables were extracted, the heads of St. Peter and St. Paul, two of Jesus' apostles, were last seen being kicked around in the street for sport. In the midst of the blood and filth, an old nun managed to tuck away the head of John the Baptist, one of the holiest figures in Christianity, the man who baptised Jesus Christ. The enormous 1,200-year-old golden cross of Constantine the Great, the man who converted the Roman Empire to Christianity, was smashed into pieces and pulled apart for jewels. The Veronica cloth, a linen garment said to bear the face of Christ himself, was used to mop up beer in a local tavern. Nails that pierced Christ's flesh as he died on the cross, innumerable hands, fingers and clothing belonging to saints. If these relics had no monetary value, they were destroyed purely on principle. The inner sanctum of churches, the holiest places, were turned into brothels as blood-drunk soldiers passed the time between murdering and looting. Monks and priests wept, not for their own fate, but for that of Rome. One cardinal remarked with great pity, quote, Christians are doing what even the Turks never did, end quote. And just when it seemed like things couldn't get any worse, Cardinal Colonna, the Pope's old rival, arrived. With the city already fallen, his men wasted no time in joining in on looting. Although at first he was eager to twist the knife into his rival, it seemed like once he realised just how horrific this sack was, he tried to pull back. But it was too late. He'd already poured gasoline on the fire. An additional 8,000 men now rampaged through the Queen of Cities. As the smog and screams wafted into the richer part of Rome, Isabella d'Estin looked nervously from the palace that she sheltered in. The woman had got herself in and out of some very hairy situations throughout her life, but even she would admit she was in over her head this time. As the dying light of the day and the fires throughout the city illuminated the collapsing buildings, she knew it was nightfall when the city was most dangerous. Suddenly, the yell of her guardsmen brought her back to reality. Her heart leapt as the shadows of figures came into view, staking through the alleyways towards the palace. Her guardsmen instinctively raised their rifles, but as the first men came into view, she screamed at them to stand down. She recognised the figure leading them. It was her son, Ferrante. Isabella had not seen Ferrante for many years, and after a tearful embrace, he explained to his mother that the Duke of Bourbon was dead and that the Pope had fled to Castle de San Angelo. He told his mother that one of the Duke's final orders was for him and his men to defend the palace that she sheltered in. But Isabella's relief was short-lived as he continued by warning her that he had little control over any of the men apart from the small group that he'd brought with him. Factionalism had split the army into many different groups. There were Spanish, Italians, and both Catholic and Lutheran Germans prowling around, and his word would only go so far. He prepared his mother, saying that he could ensure her protection, but no one else had sheltered with her. If those inside could not pay a ransom, they would be on their own. The only safe place in the entire city was now Castle de San Angelo. From the battlements atop the castle, Pope Clement VII saw in vivid colour the catastrophe that he was responsible for. Since the time historians first began to write annals of the city, there have never been accounts of a sack so brutal. Even the Gothic boogeymen, Geyseric and Alaric, neither of them had wounded the city so severely. The Pope stared, helpless, as one of his soldiers broke down crying, unable to open fire on a house where his wife and children lived. A group of drunken soldiers were on the cusp of breaking through the front door. 
and though the soldier knew what would happen once they got in, he couldn't bring himself to fire. As the mob broke down the door, another bombardier pushed the distraught man aside and fired the cannon, destroying the house and killing all those inside. At the barred gate, desperate civilians still gathered, begging to be allowed inside, and Clement watched as a half-dead cardinal was hauled up the side of the walls in a woven basket. For a man as pious as Clement, the horrific blend of laughter and tortured screams must have conjured thoughts of Judgment Day, the end of the world. A witness reports that over a skyline of smoke and red, the Pope raised his hands to the heavens and cried out, quote, Quare de vulva edu exist in me, end quote. Why did you bring me into this world? As the days dragged on, the easy plunder began to dry up. There were only so many big crosses to break apart, and it was at this point that the remains of Bourbon's council tried to restore some order to the attackers. Usually, when a siege takes place, the standard time allotted to the sacking is three days. Three days is usually considered enough time to let the soldiers' fury, excitement and lust run its course. The new commander tried his best to re-establish authority, but was more or less told exactly where to shove that order. The army had fragmented so much now that securing the loyalty of a commander or two wasn't enough. The structure was just not there, and the occupation of the city had turned into thousands of little squads of men who barely tolerated the others, let alone accepted orders from them. Richer citizens usually had the option to pay a ransom, but that ransom only gave them protection from that specific creed of soldiers. If you paid your fortune to a Spanish group, the next day the Germans could come along saying, I don't care what your agreement was with them, you pay us now or else. Women of all statuses were raped repeatedly. Many times their mothers were forced to not only watch but join in, otherwise they'd both be killed on the spot. I won't go into more detail, but the assaults were just horrific, really cruel, sick stuff. Brothers that tried to intervene were murdered, fathers were made to watch the defilement of their family members. The richest man in Rome, the guy who gave a hundred ducats to the Pope for the defence of the city, was forced to watch the gang rape of his wife and daughters while soldiers burnt down their palace. As the mobs made their way up the streets, there are instances of fathers just murdering their daughters and wives rather than letting them fall into the hands of the attackers. A hospital was broken into and all inside, many of them infants, were killed, with some just being thrown from windows into the streets. Occasionally, there are instances of women getting their revenge. When a group of soldiers chased down some local men into an alley, their wives, up in the second story, poured boiling water down on them before rushing them with meat cleavers and cudgels. As the weeks dragged on, so did the atrocities. Most of the richer citizens had been reduced to ruin or flat-out murdered, so now the target shifted to the lower class. Sailors, fishermen and labourers were tortured to reveal where they'd buried what little wealth they had. For those that had none to speak of, they needed to think on their feet. One man told his captors that all his wealth was buried out near the sea, so with his boat full of soldiers, he rowed them out into the Tiber River, and where the current was strongest, he dived off and swam to safety, leaving the Germans to drown in the river. Another story comes to us of a woman who convinced one of her rapists to have sex on a rickety table above a cesspit before pushing him into it midway through. But as the wealth of the Eternal City began to dry up, soldiers whispered of a source of untapped wealth. The rumour went that at the Colonna Palace there was a fabulously wealthy noblewoman hiding with her hundreds of the richest citizens in all of Rome. The woman, of course, was Isabella d'Este. In the days since the visit from her son, her position had become more difficult. 
Despite her armed guard and relation to both the dead commander and the current captain of the army, she had been forced to hand over many of the wealthier townsfolk sheltering with her. Crammed inside the palace, there were somewhere around 1,200 women and 1,000 men, totaling a whopping 2 million ducats of net worth. Two other captains who were actually friends with her son awkwardly told him, hey, I'm sorry, I know she's your mum, but she and everyone else in there is a spoil of war. We can do this the easy way or the hard way. Ferenta picked the former and his armed guard supervised the payment ceremony to ensure order was maintained. These men had committed atrocities every hour, every day for weeks. If he had not been there, the fate of Isabella's guests could have been very different. Slowly, each noble was accounted for and a price was decided based on their status. Isabella paid out of pocket for a couple of her close friends that were unable to find the funds, but others were on their own. They could try their hand at bargaining, but usually got them nowhere. So, outside the ornate palace, blood-stained hands snatched greedily at the fat coin purses before the captive was shoved back inside or shooed into the streets. In the very first round of ransoms, one-third of what Bourbon had originally requested for the entire city was collected. Let that sink in, just how much pain could have been spared if a few of these people dug deep. Other little safe houses throughout the city were not as lucky, though. It was Ferenta's status in the army that ensured order, and without this safety net, it was the Wild West. Cardinals and noblemen alike tried to assert themselves, but discovered quickly that their position meant less than nothing in the fallen city. If the captive was too difficult, or even if they believed he was lying, they were tortured or murdered on the spot. And those with a family knew what would happen to their wife and kids after their death. One man who didn't have enough cash on hand wrote this desperate letter to his brother, begging him to get the money, quote, I am a prisoner of the Spaniards. They have fixed my ransom at 1,000 ducats on the pretext that I am an official. They have besides tortured me twice and finished by lighting a fire under the soles of my feet. For six days I had only a little bread and water. Dear brother, do not let me perish thus miserably. Get the ransom money by begging. For God's sake, do not abandon me. If I do not pay the ransom, now amounting to 140 ducats, in 26 days they will hack me to pieces. For the love of God and of the Blessed Virgin, help me. All the Romans are prisoners, and if a man does not pay his ransom, he is killed. The sack of Genoa and of Rhodes was child's play to this. Help me, dear Antonio. Help me, for God's sake. And that as quickly as possible. End quote. With each day, things in the city got worse and worse. A good portion of the wealth had now left through the front gates. Those who had got the good stuff early on got out. Whoever was still around was now desperate to pick the corpse of the city clean. Ferrante grew concerned that the ransom his mother paid would soon be a distant memory, so late one night he smuggled her out. Dressed as a commoner, Isabella de Estia followed her son's soldier through the back streets of Rome, heading towards a small dinghy docked by the Tiber River. The city would have been barely recognisable. Almost no building was left unscathed. From the grandest church to the humblest home, the mob had turned it upside down looking for buried treasure. The stench was absolutely nauseating the sickening smell of putrefying bodies mixed with mounds of feces. Bodies had been strung up in the streets with their arms tied behind the back, and men's testicles were found scattered throughout the streets, victims of torture which grew more extreme and bizarre by the day. An eyewitness writes of the horrors he witnessed, so imagine Isabella, a woman of the highest birth, darting through the back streets to this scene. Quote, in Rome, the chief city of Christendom, no bells ring, no churches are open, no masses are said, 
Sundays and feast days have ceased. The rich shops of the merchants are turned into stables. The most splendid palaces are stripped bare. Many houses are burnt to the ground. In others, the doors and windows are broken and carried away. The streets are changed into dung hills. The stench of bodies is terrible. Men and beasts have a common grave, and in churches I have seen corpses that dogs have gnawed. In the public places, tables are set close together, at which piles of ducats are gambled for. The air rings with blasphemies, fit to make good men, if such there would be, wish they were deaf. I know nothing wherewith I can compare it, except it be the destruction of Jerusalem. I do not believe that if I lived for another 200 years, I should see the like again. End quote. Isabella reached the bank of the Tiber safely. The woman had lived a fantastical life, but as she boarded the creaking lifeboat and pushed off into the blackness, it's safe to say the things she had seen, heard, and smelt would be forever burned into her mind. She arrived safely at the port of Ostia where she met her other son. Though few possessions made it out of the dead city, one did, and as she emerged from the boat, she presented her son with the cardinal hat she had promised him. Isabella was nothing if not a woman of her word. Greetings from Evergreen Podcasts. We're rolling out a listener survey and we want to hear from you. The information in the survey will help us gather statistics and in turn make our shows more appealing to advertisers. I know most people don't like ads, but this is one of the only ways our shows make money and help keep their lights on. We promise it will only take a few minutes, but the impact on our podcasts will be tremendous. As a token of our appreciation, we'll randomly select one lucky participant each month to win an exclusive merchandise package from Evergreen Podcasts. Head to evergreenpodcast.com slash listener survey to help a show and possibly get some free stuff for doing so. We can't thank you enough for the support. Now back to the show. I'm Allison Holland, host of the Kennedy Dynasty podcast. Equipped with a microphone and a long-term fascination of the Kennedy family, I am joined by an incredible cast of experts, friends, and guests to take you on a fun, relaxed, yet informative journey through history and pop culture. From book references to fashion to philanthropy to our modern expectations of the presidency itself, you'll see that there is so much more to Kennedy than just JFK or conspiracy theories. Join me for the Kennedy Dynasty podcast. After nearly a month of ceaseless plundering, the party was finally starting to wind down for the soldiers. The food situation was growing dire, and the mountains of corpse left unburied in the streets attracted rats and the plague. The German Landknechts began to drift home, and why wouldn't they? Many of them would never have to work again, with some of the poorest men amongst them gaining upwards of 3,000 ducats. But the Spaniards stayed behind. Despite the squalor they lived, they knew that there was one spot in Rome that was still full of treasure. Castle de San Angelo. For almost a month, the Pope had sat helplessly in his tower, hoping that someone, anyone, would come to his aid. If Clement had endeared himself to anyone, either King Francois or Emperor Charles, one of them may have made an effort to help him. Instead, they both sat idly by, hoping that the army would just run out of steam or that the Pope would die, whatever came sooner. On the 6th of June, 1527, exactly one month since the siege began, Pope Clement VII opened up negotiations for surrender. The olive-skinned, youthful pontiff who entered the tower was gone. In his place was a drawn and sombre man aged well beyond his years. His strong jawline now obscured by a heavy grey beard that he had grown in mourning for the city. 
The first man he met was his nemesis, Cardinal Colonna, the man who had organised the earlier raid and had bought more troops once the siege was finished. Despite the decades of scheming and personal animosity between them, both men were reduced to tears as they lamented the horrific state that their beautiful city had been reduced to. And weep they should. Both men in their own way contributed greatly to what had occurred. The spokesman for the mutinous army was a minor prince of southern Spain, and his demands were quite literally impossible. He wanted the Pope to surrender a stack of papal territory and hand over 400,000 ducats. Remember, by this point, pretty much everything he owned had been stolen. The Pope owned literally what he was wearing, and that was it. When the pontiff protested that he didn't have the money, the spokesman cut him off mid-sentence. Jeering, he actually grabbed the wrist of the Holy Father and shook it, motioning towards the large ring that the Pope still had on his finger. In the end, the Pope agreed to his terms with no clue how he was going to get the money. So they locked him in a cell until he could figure it out. Weeks turned into months, and Pope Clement VII, the Vicar of Christ, sat alone with plenty of time to reflect upon his failures. As his beard grew and grew, he looked more and more like the crazed hermit who gave him that ominous warning before this mess started. His jailers mocked him, and apart from bread and water, he had nothing. In the end, it was his old nemesis, Cardinal Colonna, that arranged to help the downtrodden Pope. Bonded, perhaps by a shared guilt, Colonna hatched a plan to free him. A feast was arranged for his guards, and once they were well and truly drunk, a few men broke in and rescued the pontiff from the prison he'd spent eight months in. Dressed as a servant in a rough spun hood, the Pope carried out an empty basket with a sack over his shoulder and walked out the front door. With the Pope now gone, the last of the Spaniards who had been hanging out for one final payout realised their time was up. As they departed the corpse of the city, after almost an entire year of inhuman savagery, a tiny morsel of justice was finally meted out. Many of the terrorised citizens who had lost everything had taken to living in the undercity, ancient crypts, tunnels and storehouses used by their ancestors. And from there these men and women emerged, filthy and desperate, murdering any stragglers who lagged behind. As the sun rose in March 1528, the city of Romulus was finally free. Discounting the loss of irreplaceable artefacts, buildings and ancient texts, the human cost of the siege was enormous. E.R. Chamberlain estimates that more than two-thirds of the population had been killed or enslaved something to the effect of 30,000 people. A couple of months later, on the 6th of October 1528, the townsfolk of Rome gathered at the battered walls to a site on the horizon. Rome was different now. Subdued, humbled, whatever word you pick, all those still there had seen things, lived through things that humans should never have to experience. There were a few street vendors now, some churches were open and the nauseating stench of rotting corpses was reserved only to certain districts. As the sight on the horizon grew closer, a shaggy looking man in a long white cloak came into view. Few would have recognised him until he passed them. It was Clement VII, his face now engulfed by a long dark beard which he would refuse to cut for the rest of his life. The Pope was coming home. Considering what had happened and his previous lack of popularity with the citizens, the Pope had ordered that no celebration was to take place for his return. But as his entourage marched silently through the charred lanes of the city, a few people began to clap. It was a slow, solemn clap, but it caught on. For all he was, for all the mistakes he'd made, 
This man was one of them, bound by a shared trauma. The clapping got louder. As Pope Clement VII looked down the drawn faces of the wounded population, he was deeply touched by the applause, and holding out his hands to the crowd, he began to weep. He had finally earned their acceptance. The 1527 sack of Rome has been called the 16th century's 9-11, an event that changed everything and changed nothing. When the Holy Roman Emperor Charles V heard about his mutinous troops destroying the city, he was busy celebrating the birth of his first male heir. Kind of just shrugged it off like, yeah, well, that's the Duke of Bourbon's fault. And while it was easy to criticise the now-dead, universally-hated Duke, it was Charles's late pay that pushed the men in his army to mutiny in the first place. Likewise, it was King Francois's deliberate disrespect of Bourbon that pushed him into the arms of his enemy. The Duke of Bourbon's betrayal would be the last of its kind in French history. With his death, the senior branch of the Bourbon family went extinct, and the family lands were slowly integrated into the Kingdom of France. As for Charles V, thanks to the heavy treaty that his mutinous soldiers had forced on the Pope, he could have, in theory, annexed Rome into his domain, as well as many other territories. But how would that look to the rest of the Christian world? He took a bit of land and a bit of money, but left it at that. With the return of the Pope, the city would rebuild. But it would not be the same Rome that emerged from the rubble. Most of the Vatican Library had survived due to it being used as headquarters for the soldiers. Colonna Palace, where Isabella de Este had sheltered, remained relatively unscathed. And most surprising of all, the incomplete Sistine Chapel was left untouched. Used as a makeshift tomb for the Duke of Bourbon, the general's body kept out most of the looters. Apart from that, almost no building was left unscathed. Artisans, poets, goldsmiths, painters, sculptors, many esteemed Renaissance men were gone. A couple had managed to escape, but many were missing, assumed dead. Soon, the aged Michelangelo would be coaxed back in to finish his work on the Sistine Chapel. Prior to the sacking, he had painted the roof with colourful, bright scenes from the Bible. The most famous of these is the centre panel, where God reaches out with an outstretched hand to Adam, the first man, imbuing mankind with his knowledge. An almost arrogant subject matter, you could say. But when he returned after the sacking, he began to work on the famous Last Judgment. Though equally famous, it's darker, both in context and colour, depicting God's judgement with the ascension to heaven for the pious and the descent into hell for the damned. This perhaps shows the shifting taste in both the Pope and the people of Rome. Pope Clement VII would live for another few years before passing away at the relatively young age of 56. And what, what can we say about the man? Well, you know his story now, so it's up to you. He undoubtedly had many weaknesses in his character. And while his inability to make a decision made little problems into much larger ones, did he actually cause them? Historian James Grubb says, quote, Indeed, at a certain point, it is difficult to see how he might have fared much better, given the obstacles he faced, end quote. The Catholic world was ripping itself apart. Could any pope have managed to halt the Reformation? He ruled over one of the most tumultuous times in the church's history, and although he exercised poor judgment, he showed up and took responsibilities of his role to heart. Even his last letter, which he penned as he lay dying, was to the Holy Roman Emperor, Charles V begging him to remain steadfast to the church. This was sent just after King Henry VIII officially left the Catholic faith. Quote, I implore you by the heart of our Lord Jesus Christ, in this my last hour, that your majesty will maintain the same disposition towards the Holy Church 
and the welfare of the whole of Christendom, end quote. The Rome of today is a very different city to the one that the Duke of Bourbon laid his hungry eyes upon in 1527. One of my favourite things about travelling is knowing the history behind the places I visit. And Rome, like Beijing, Istanbul, Baghdad, or Delhi, is a nexus for big bang historical events like this. And today, the Colonna Palace, where Isabella de Este held out with the richest magnates of Rome, is open for private booking. The Castle de San Angelo, sometimes called Hadrian's Tomb, is open to the public. As crowded as it is, it's eerie to think that you're standing in the same spot as Pope Clement VII as he watched helplessly as his whole city was destroyed. To get there, you'll cross the pristine Alien Bridge, the very bridge that Renzo de Cherry wanted destroyed as a precaution in case the Duke's army breached the walls. And from the top of the castle, you'll be able to see the Passetto di Borgo, the raised walkway which the Pope escaped across as the land connections broke into his palace. As far as I know, the Passetto was off limits to the public. Thankfully for the Pope, the escape route was never needed since 1527. If you follow the Passato all the way back, you'll be in Vatican City. At just over one kilometre, or 1,150 yards long, it's the smallest country in the world and all that remains are the papal lands that once spanned most of central Italy. At its nexus is St. Peter's Basilica, built on the very spot where St. Peter was crucified upside down by Emperor Nero. It's here where every Pope, up to the current one, lives. And if you buy the full visitor package, you'll also see the Templar Cemetery and stand on the very spot where Caspar Royst and his 189 guards held back the Landknechts. And to this day, almost 500 years later, if you're lucky enough to catch sight of the Pope, you'll notice his flamboyantly dressed guards. Decked out in baggy cloth trousers with long gleaming pikes, they look like something from another era. Because they are. While the days of renegade French generals and Holy Roman Emperors are long gone, the only men now trusted to guard the Pope are the Swiss Guard. This has been Anthology of Heroes. Thank you to the show's patrons, Philip, Angus, Seth, Alex, Malcolm, Tom, and Claudia. Thanks for tuning in. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Burn the Boats from Evergreen Podcasts. I interview political leaders and influencers, folks like award-winning journalist Soledad O'Brien and conservative columnist Bill Kristol about the choices they confront when failure is not an option. I won't agree with everyone I talk to, but I respect anyone who believes in something enough to risk everything for it. Because history belongs to those willing to burn the boats. Episodes are out every other week wherever you get your podcasts.